Good morning. This morning's scripture reading will come from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Starting in verse 1, Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need." so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is God's word. Thank you, David, for reading that. Now I know that many of you probably thinking after you read that, this is a sermon on giving. Mark and Jeremy are not here, and they asked you to preach on giving. Coming off the tail end of a church business meeting, no less. Wow, you guys are real sly. Now, let me just assure you up front at the very beginning that nothing could be further from the truth. Nor is this to say that financially we're really struggling and you guys need to pick it up. No, that's not the case. This has been a passage that has been near and dear to my heart for some time now, and I'm thankful that I have this opportunity to look into it with you all this morning. Before we do that, would you pray with me? Lord, we ask that you would speak through your word, Lord, that it would be clear, that it would be beautiful to our hearts, Lord, that we would see the wonder of your grace in this passage, that we would see clearly the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that by meditating and looking at your grace, we would be motivated to the grace of giving. Lord, bless this time. Amen. Perhaps you're here this morning and you think giving financially to the, earth, to the church is like eating your vegetables. Don't want to do it, but apparently they're good for me, so I need to eat them. All right? You think of giving to the church in the, in the same way. 
Well, I don't really want to give, but I know that the Bible apparently says I should give, so therefore I give. I think of all the subjects that preachers have to preach on, giving has to be near the top. I tried to look up a good survey of like, what's the hardest thing to preach on? And I couldn't really get a good survey, but it has to be towards the top, right? I mean, we don't like asking for money. I mean, it just feels so awkward and just cringy, like, oh, he's asking for my money. We don't like that. We shy away from it. And if we take the vegetables approach of, that's eh, not really all that enjoyable, but we have to do it, I can see why it's an uncomfortable subject for us to look into. I was flipping through, it was actually just by the Lord's Providence a couple weeks ago, a Church Life magazine kind of came in, and it was about giving. I was like, oh, wow, maybe there's something in here I can use. And in it, there was this article that broke up your church into four categories. And the whole thing was about how to get your church to give more. They started with you have rookie givers. You then have relative givers. You have relational givers. And then you have radical givers. I mean, if that alliteration with those R's doesn't get you to give, I don't know what will, right? But the whole point of this article was to get your church from rookie givers, where we start out at, to get them to radical givers, and I think of all of this, and all this thinking about giving financially to our church and church work. I mean, have we even stopped to consider what the Bible says about this? That seems like a good place to start. What does Paul say? How does he approach this issue? What's even the motivation for giving? What on earth are we even giving towards? So 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we're just going to be in the first 15 verses of of chapter 8, but 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 answer those questions. It goes to the heart of giving. And this morning, I want to look at, if you have the notes, how the riches of God's grace radically reshapes and reforms how we ought to think about financial giving. How the riches of God's grace radically reshapes and reforms how we think about giving. I think we can break down this passage pretty, pretty simply, right? Paul gives two examples and two calls to give. It's a pretty simple passage. He gives an example of giving in the Macedonians. He calls the church in Corinth to give. He gives an example of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he calls the church to give again. So we're going to walk through the passage briefly, and then we're going to come back and look at two doctrines, two doctrines that this text reveals that we, need to mo- that we need to meditate on, and that will motivate us to give. Does that make sense? Two examples, two calls, two doctrines, that as we meditate on those doctrines, it will motivate us to give. So first, the example of God's grace in the Macedonians. The example of God's grace at work in the Macedonians. Verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. We have, to, we have to stop and slow down here because we can easily lose sight of what, what Paul is doing. What's he doing in this passage? Okay? He, he's writing to the church in Corinth. Right? This is 2 Corinthians. Right? We have 1 Corinthians. He's writing to the church in Corinth. 2 Corinthians. He's still writing to that church. He, he's writing to that church and he's telling them about the grace that has been given to the Macedonian churches. That's what he says. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. That's been given to the churches in Macedonia. Particularly, if you're thinking of Macedonia, probably the the Philippian church, right? Um, You have the church in Philippi, churches in Thessalonica, right? We have letters to them as well. He's talking about those churches. I want you to know about the grace of God that has been given to those churches, and that grace is evidenced by their giving. The evidence of God's grace at work in those churches is evidenced by their giving. And they're giving money to the saints, to the church in Jerusalem. You might actually be surprised to learn how much Paul actually talks about giving. It's not an issue he shies away from, right? In 1 Corinthians 16, he writes about collecting for the same saints, for the same church in Jerusalem. He writes there in 1 Corinthians 16, Now concerning the collection of money for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. And he goes on to say, it's the first day of the week. 
to set money aside. And it's, you know, proportionate to your, uh, to your income, how much you receive. You give back. Talks about in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 Corinthians 9. He talks about giving to support your pastors. In Galatians 6, he talks about financial giving. Romans 15, he talks about the same thing. In 1 Timothy 5, just to name a few. Okay, so, so giving is not an issue Paul's like, I'm not going to talk about that. He spills a lot of ink on giving. But you see, in our passage, we can easily get confused if we miss the opening verse. Let's read it again. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. Paul's telling us right up front what he's talking about. He's talking about the grace of God. He's talking about God's grace. You really see grace as a key word throughout 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, really throughout the whole book. But but look back with me in chapter 8. Look at verse 4. He says, begging us earnestly for the favor. Maybe you have your ESV footnote. It's the same word for grace. It's the exact same word. It says that they were begging us earnestly for the grace. Okay, look at verse 6. He says, so he, Titus, should complete among you this act of grace. Look over at verse 7. See that you excel in this act of grace. Look in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about God's grace. And he's talking about God's grace as it relates to giving. So if we start on the wrong foot, if we start with giving and don't start with God's grace, we're going to go askew in how we understand this passage. He's talking about God's grace. Have you ever stopped to consider what grace is? What's grace? And we talk about it all the time in our conversations with one another. We sing songs about God's grace. After the sermon, we're going to sing a song about God's grace. We write books about God's grace. Have you ever noticed that Paul begins and ends every single letter he writes with grace? Every single one. He starts with something like this, grace to you. Right? And then if you go to the end of that letter, he ends with something along the lines of grace be with you. Is it just a nice way to say hello and a nice way to say goodbye? Or is Paul actually letting us know something far more significant? I would suggest that what Paul is doing by making grace at the beginning and end of his letters is he's shining a spotlight on what's the core of his ministry. It's all about God's grace. That's what this passage is about. And if we miss that in verse 1, we'll miss what God is saying. This passage is an exposition of God's grace and how it radically transforms how we think about giving. And that's all in verse 1. Verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. You see, here's the evidence of God's grace at work. He's saying, church in Corinth, In a severe test of affliction, in in the most harshest of conditions, the churches in Macedonia overflowed in giving. They they were super abounding in giving. Verse 3, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. They went above and beyond. Verse 4, begging us earnestly for the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Look at verse 4. They were begging us to give. (laughs) What? The church was begging Paul to give more. I think every pastor is looking at this just going, what in the world? What am I doing wrong? I mean, this is amazing. These incredibly poor people, beggars in extreme poverty, were begging to give. By the way, in the first century Roman Empire, there's no well-off you know, middle class that we're accustomed to very much in the 21st century in America, right? Or you have a middle class. They're, they're financially independent. We have savings set aside. You don't have that. 
Most estimate that 70% of people living at this time lived at or below the daily sustenance level. Meaning, they're working all day, every day, hoping to make enough to feed their families for that day. I mean, these incredibly poor Christians are begging to give away more of what incredibly little they already had. How? What, what motivated them? How could this have happened? And Paul's saying, and this not as we expected, I mean, this is only in our wildest dreams that they would give in this way. What was motivating them? It's a great question that we're going to come back to. Here's the first call that Paul then gives. He gives the example of the Macedonians, verse 6. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. So Titus had already begun. Um, he, he'd already been to the church in Corinth. And what Paul is saying here, he mentions in, in 2 Corinthians 7 that he'd already been there. He's saying, continue this act. He's going to send Titus back to the church. And he's saying, continue you need to finish this act of grace. You need to finish this act of giving, this giving to the churches in Jerusalem. Verse 7, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So he's writing to the church, and he's saying, hey, you guys are doing really great in faith, in word, you know, in speech, you guys are doing great. You also need to do well in this act of grace. He's encouraging them. You guys are doing great. You also need to do this. And even even says, I'm not even saying this as a command, right? Verse 8, not as a command. Simply telling you guys about the grace of God that's at work in Macedonia and saying you guys also need to excel in this act of grace. So he calls them to give, and then he moves to a second example. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. You see, Paul goes to the ultimate example. He goes to the example of God's grace in Christ. In light of what he has done, how can we not give? So he gives another example. Then he calls them again in verses 10 to 15. He calls them to complete this act of grace. He even says, look, this is actually good for you guys. Look at verse 10. In this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you. It's good for you to give. And just as an aside, he's not saying you guys need to give so much such that now you're the poor ones and everyone has to support you. Right? You see that in verse 13. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. This is a matter of fairness, that there is a, a equality in what is essential for living among the churches. And that's really... The text he gives an example, he calls them to give, he gives another example, and he calls them to give. But I want to show this morning that these verses are so much more than just examples of sacrificial giving and calls to give. I mean, if, that, if that's all Paul wanted to say, he could have said it like this. The Macedonians gave, Christ gave, now you need to give. He could have said it in like half a verse, right? He could have been real simple. But no, he spills a lot of ink on giving. So, so we need to ask ourselves this. Why? Why is he doing this? Why does he spend 15 verses talking about God's grace? Why did he give us these examples of the Macedonians and of Jesus Christ? Not primarily to say, look at these examples and give, but to make much of grace. The grace of God and the grace of giving. It's grace that motivates, and it's grace that we need to meditate on in this passage. So the first doctrine we're going to look at, the grace of God. The grace of God. Grace. What is it? Is it simply getting what we don't deserve? That's what we talk about. Maybe it's, it's God's kindness towards us. Well, those are some partially true definitions. We need to more fully unpack grace. Grace is God's sovereign saving power. 
Grace is God's power on display, particularly when Paul uses it. He's talking about the decisive saving act of Jesus Christ. It's what we call the gospel. He's talking about the gospel when he's talking about grace. Listen to these verses, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 4. Paul writes, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. You see, the grace of God came to them in a person, Jesus Christ. He's thankful that the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ is working in them. Grace works. Grace is powerful. In Romans 3, verses 23 and following, it's a crucial passage on how we are saved by faith and faith alone. Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, grace is a gift. That's what makes it grace. It's because you can't merit it. You, you can't do anything to get it. Grace comes to you in the person of Jesus Christ. It works redemption. That's what grace does. It's powerful. It's through the work on the cross that Jesus has done that God's grace comes to us. In Romans 11, verse 5, speaks of the chosen people of Israel, and it says, so too at the present time there's a remnant, and they're not chosen by their works, they're chosen by grace. It's all of God's sovereign will. It's his good pleasure in choosing to save his people. In Titus 2:11, Paul says that the grace of God has appeared. He's talking about Jesus Christ. He's saying the grace of God is the person of Jesus Christ. He has appeared and he is the one who is bringing salvation for all people. Acts 11 verse 23 speaks of the gospel of the grace of God. You see, the gospel is God's grace to us. It's his sovereign, powerful working. In the gospel, it's God bringing about a possible result, a result that only he can bring about. Only he can do it. That's God's grace. Grace displays the greatness of God. And it's this same powerful grace. It's that same grace that Paul speaks of in verse 9. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Listen. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see, Paul here can't be talking about, you know, Jesus became financially poor. He can't be saying, Jesus became financially poor so that you can become financially rich. How do we know that? Because the Macedonians he just mentioned earlier are direct proof against that. They didn't become financially rich. Has nothing to do with your finances. Has everything to do with the incarnation. Has everything to do with the gospel. <laughs> Has everything to do with Christ, though he was rich, yet he, for your sake, became poor. See, Paul talks about this in Philippians 2. He speaks of the same thing. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. But rather, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's how Christ became poor in the incarnation. We have to understand that he was rich. Christ was rich. He not only created, he alone is the creator. Christ was not only mighty, he was almighty. He was not only sufficient, he was all-sufficient. He was not only powerful, he was all-powerful. And this is the one who became poor, who emptied himself. The only sovereign who needed nothing set aside his infinite riches to become man. So that we, by his poverty, might become rich. Why did he have to become poor? Well, first, we need to say that he did not need to become poor. He freely and willingly became poor. He said, I do this of my own accord. No one made him do this. He willingly laid down his life because he loved his people. Verse 9 says, for your sake he became poor. Because he loved his people. But second, 
Christ became poor because we were poor. Not only were we poor, we were debtors. We were debtors. Our condition was not only desperate, it was hopeless. There was no light at the end of the tunnel for us. We were dead in our sins. We had rejected our Creator. We were those in Romans 1, 2, and 3 who had rejected the truth about God and exchanged the glory of God to worship ourselves. We exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We worshiped and served ourselves rather than God. We were those who were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, slanders, and haters of God. We were unrighteous. We had altogether turned aside from God. See, we weren't only poor, we were debtors. We had a bigger problem. You see, this is the powerful work of grace to come and save wretched sinners like me and like you. I think one of our greatest problems with grace is that we know the grace of God so well that we forget it. That seems to be the case in Corinth. Look at verse 9 again. For you all know the grace of God. But I'm going to tell it to you again anyways. You know it. But let me remind you. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. I was reminded of how, much, how easy it is for us to forget God's grace just a couple weeks ago. It was a few weeks ago now, but um, Mark was preaching through Matthew 27. And there, there was a verse that just simply weighed so heavily on my soul. I know it's one of those verses you've read it before. And the Spirit moves in such a way that, wow, I'd never seen that before. In Matthew 27, remember, it's after the trial of Jesus. Pilate says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves that you crucify him. You guys remember that? I find no fault in this man. I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Do you remember what the Jews, the people there, what they said? His blood be on us and on our children. And it struck me that his blood is on our hands. His blood is on my hands. It was my sin that led to his death. George Swinnick was a pastor a couple hundred years ago, and he wrote this. What was it that brought the blessed Savior into such a bleeding condition? It was my sin. I was the Judas which betrayed him, the Jew which apprehended him, the Pilate that condemned him, and the Gentile which crucified him. My sins... My sins were the thorns which pierced his head, the nails which pierced his hands, and the spear which pierced his heart. It was I that put to death the Lord of life. He died for my sins. He was made sin for me who knew no sin. He suffered in my stead. He bore my sins in his body on the tree. He drank that loathsome purging medicine for the diseases of my soul. When he was in the garden in his bloody agony, groveling on the ground, there was no Judas. No pilot, no Jew, no Gentile there to cause that unnatural sweat or to make his soul sorrowful unto death. But my pride, my unbelief, my hypocrisy, my atheism, my blasphemy, my unthankfulness, my carnal-mindedness, they were there and caused his inward bleeding sorrows and outward bloody sufferings. Oh, what a heavy weight was my sin to cause such a bloody sweat in a frosty night. What a sickness is sin when nothing less than the blood of the Son of God can heal it. But you see, it's here. It's here as we contemplate the, the dark canvas of the sinfulness of our souls that the riches of God's grace burst onto the page. It's when we contemplate 
our sinfulness, that the grace of God shines the brightest. He descended to earth that we might ascend to heaven. You see, he was tempted that we might overcome. He became a servant that we might become sons. He emptied himself that we might be filled in him. He was rejected that we might be accepted. He was beaten that we might be spared. He sweat drops of blood that we might have fullness of joy. You see, he died in the flesh that we might live in the spirit. He became poor that we might be rich. You see, this is the grace of God that we lose the wonder of. And remember, he didn't do this when we were lovable. He didn't do this when we had worth. He didn't do this when we were desiring him. But when we were enemies, when we were haters of God, when we were sinners against him, this is when he did this wonderful act of grace. Romans 5, 6, don't miss this. For while we were still weak, not when you were strong, not when you had your life put together because you don't have it put together. When we were messed up sinners who hated God, that's when he died for the ungodly. This is the grace of God. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, we forever need to banish the thought that we have earned God's grace because of something we have done. It's so easy for us to drift into, well, the reason why God loves me, the reason why his grace is so great to me is because of how I'm living my Christian life now. Look at all these good things I've done. No, our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. You see, the grace of God shines brightly as we contemplate our sinfulness and we see the greatness of God's grace and his wonder-working power on display. He is the one who has justified us. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, he did that. He has adopted us. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and we are. It's not a hypothetical. We are. He has done that work. He has set us free from the power of sin. He is sanctifying us. It all goes back to him. This is the riches of God's grace to us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And it's here, as we, as we contemplate this, as we meditate on the grace of God, that it fuels and drives, second, the grace of giving. You see, we have to start there. We have to start there before we contemplate giving. It's this same powerful grace. That same grace is the battery that powers the church's giving. You see, we don't need grace at the beginning of our lives only to get rid of it and then move on to other things. No, it's the grace of God in the gospel that fuels our entire lives as Christians, our walk with him in our workplace, our walk with him in our family, our walk with him in our church, and in our giving, we go back to God's grace. Now, because we're parachuting in on 2 Corinthians 8, I need to go back a little bit, because Paul's been speaking of grace already in 2 Corinthians. Go back to 2 Corinthians 5. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul has been unpacking already the wonder of this grace. He's been talking about grace already. He talks about this, verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Jump down to verse 21. He says, for our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Christ the Son, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the grace of God in the gospel. And then, in chapter 6, verse 1, look at what he says. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. There's our key word again. Now, at this point, we go, what is he talking about? Receive the grace of God in vain. What does that mean? It's not until we come to 2 Corinthians 8 that Paul returns to grace, and he unpacks what he's talking about. He, he talks about what it means to receive the grace of God in vain. Receiving it in vain to the Corinthians would mean not excelling in this act of grace, as he says in 2 Corinthians 8-7. You also need to excel in this act of grace. If you received it in vain, it's not going to change you to do this. He's calling them to excel in this grace of giving. Remember, he's writing to the Corinthians, He's telling them about the grace of God, which is so clearly evident in the churches of Macedonia because of their giving spirit, right? It's not about the amount. 
They were beggars. They couldn't raise millions and billions of dollars. No, it was what they had. But they were begging to give away it. They were begging to give it away because grace had changed them. Because grace had worked in them. Look at verse 2 of chapter 8. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty, it's overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. You see, it's in these toughest of all conditions and circumstances, out of the depths of their extreme poverty, that they begged and joyfully gave away. And we need to ask, why? Like, why? How did they give like that? What changed them? Number one, they understood God's grace. They understood the grace of God. Notice, Paul never commands the Corinthian church to give. He never tells them, you guys need to give. He says the exact opposite in verse 8. I say this not as a command. Let me make this very clear. I am not commanding you to give. I am not commanding you. And he doesn't need to because he knows grace transforms us such that we want to give. (laughs) I want to give. This is how it works. It's not just a good moral example. He's not talking about the Macedonians to say, look at this good thing they've done. Look at Christ, this good thing he's done. They gave, you know, therefore I should give. No, the power of grace is this. God gave his son and I died with him. God gave his son and I was buried with him. Romans 6, I was raised to life with him. I'm one with Christ. I'm a new creation in him. How can I not give? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's why I must give. Because the richness and the power of God's grace in Jesus Christ Paul's saying the Macedonians understood God's grace. And he's writing to the church in Corinth. And by implication, I think he's writing to us this morning and he's saying, do you understand God's grace? If you understand the grace of God, you know that any service he calls us to is an undeserved favor. It's all of grace. We do not deserve to do this. You see, and the power of God's grace works in his people to even desire to give. Did you catch that? Look back in chapter 8, verse 10. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. You catch that? Grace works so much that we actually want to give. That's why he doesn't have to command them. Because the wonder of God's grace works in our hearts and it changes us. You see, grace is not just niceness. It's not just God's kindness to us. It's his power that actually changes. Do you notice how Paul doesn't advocate for any giving strategy? There's no program. He doesn't even give an amount. You know, he doesn't put the thermometer up on the wall. You know, it's like we're trying to, we're at this much, we want to get to this much. I'm not knocking a thermometer. I mean, it works sometimes. It's good to help us understand giving. You see, not only did the Macedonians understand God's grace, but they understood what they were giving to. They understood what they were giving to. Look back at verse 4. He writes, the churches in Macedonia, they were what? Begging to take part in the relief of the saints. Stop for a minute. Why do you say saints? Why didn't he say church like he did in verse 1? He could have said that, the churches in Jerusalem, or he could have said the believers. He says saints. We need to have our thinking caps on and ask why. I mean, aren't the saints a football team? Like, why is he? I don't get it. Turn quickly to Daniel 7. Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, Daniel sees a vision of the end times, okay? He's seen the Ancient of Days and the the Son of Man, and Daniel also speaks in this passage on the saints, 
the saints who will rule with the Son of Man. We've been in Matthew, right? That's the title that Jesus uses for himself, the Son of Man. It goes back to this passage, Daniel 7. Daniel 7, verse 13. Daniel 7, 13. I saw, this is Daniel's vision, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. It's the Messiah. It's Jesus Christ. And he came to the Ancient of Days, the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion, the Son of Man's dominion, is an everlasting one which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So we see there what every people, nation, and language in this kingdom. That should maybe make us think of Revelation 5, right? Where we see every tribe, language, people, and nation gathering before the throne and and worshiping the Lamb who was slain. Who are these people? Who are these saints? Verse 27. Daniel 7, verse 27. In the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. You see in Daniel 7, we don't have time, but I think four or five other times he uses that same construction, the saints. It literally means the holy ones. It's a unique construction that Daniel uses and Paul picks up on to make us think of this moment, this moment in the end times, looking forward to the saints God's holy people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Paul's going back to this, and he's saying the Macedonians knew they were giving to this. This is the work that we're involved in. This is the greatness of what we're doing. It's far bigger than just Crossway. It's far bigger than just Bakersfield. And it's far bigger than just America. This is a global work that God is doing, and this is the the grace that God has given us to be a part of it. We can be a part of God's global operation. We can be a preview of coming attractions to come in the kingdom. This is God's work among all the peoples. You see, this is why the Macedonians were begging to give away. You mean by giving financially, we get to participate in that? Just by giving? Wait, wait. We who were poor... Not only poor, we who were debtors, that that God's grace was so kind to us, you mean that we can now actually be ambassadors for Christ? You you mean we can actually now give? What, What is this grace? You mean we can be a part of spreading that message, not just here, but across the globe by giving? You mean we can demonstrate that it's not about Jew or Greek, that it's not about slave or free? That it's not about male or female? You mean we can be a part of demonstrating that we have been been made one new man in Christ by giving money? Why am I not going to give to that? I can be a part of God's gracious work. And it's more than just giving relief, just to be nice. Well, because it'd be a good thing to do to give some money to our workers in Africa and in Asia. Oh, it's a nice thing to do. No, those are our brothers and sisters. Those are our people. Do you realize you have more in common, biblically speaking, with your believing neighbor in Africa who you've never met than your unbelieving neighbor who lives across your front door, across the street? Those are our people. Doesn't matter what they look like. Doesn't matter what language they speak. Because when we get to the end, we're all going to be speaking one language. We're all going to be glorifying God for his grace. That's why we give. Those are our people. But if we miss grace... If we miss grace and what Paul's doing in this passage, we get so confused. And that's why we come to verses like you know, 13 and 14. Where Paul's talking about fairness. What is this? You have, is socialism? Communism? What's going on, Paul? Let me just say this. This text has absolutely nothing to do with advocating a governmental economic system. We are imposing on the text when we go to 2 Corinthians 8 and say something like that. This text has absolutely nothing to do with advocating for a type of government, and it has everything to do with the transformed community of the church. It has everything to do with the people where God's grace has worked. 
You see, this is what the church did in Acts 2.45. You remember this? As they're devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to the teaching, to uh, the fellowship, to the bread. As they're devoting themselves, they're living life on life in the church. This is what it says. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That is so vital. It's not saying you become a Christian, get rid of everything you have. It's saying when you become a Christian, everything you have is the Lord's. Everything you have is the Lord's. And that means when your brother, whether it's your brother in the church here or in your church abroad, you give. Well, because they have need. Well, why would I not give to that? Those are my people. And this is why Paul quotes at the very end, verse 15, Exodus 16, 18. Back in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. He goes back to the people of Israel, and when God provided manna for them in the wilderness. And he says that just as in the Old Testament community, under the Old Covenant, that God provided for his people, now, in the New Testament, in the New Covenant community of God, where God's grace is being is at work amongst his people, amongst Jew and Gentile, how much more should the grace of God transform his people? He says how God gave in the Old Testament, his program now for giving and supporting his people is the church. You see, this is why we ought to give joyfully and richly to our gospel workers, whether they're here in Bakersfield, our local church, in Uganda, in Kenya, and Southeast Asia, not just because we want to be nice, not just because we want to do a kind thing, but because grace has transformed us. Because the riches of God's grace to us in Christ has changed us, and we love our brothers and sisters, wherever they are. Remember 2 Corinthians 9, 7? Maybe you've heard this verse. God loves a cheerful giver. And what we do is we go to that verse and we say, well, not very cheerful. Or I'm not going to give. And we rip that verse completely out of context. You see, what Paul is saying when he says God loves a cheerful giver, it means God loves when his grace transforms his people such that they beg to give. Not for guilt trip reasons, but for the gospel reasons. Because the grace of God has worked in his people. And that's why they give joyfully. Closing, I just want to ask a couple of questions. Why don't we give? Why don't we give? And I'll just go back to the example of the churches in Macedonia. They understood God's grace. We don't give because we don't understand God's grace. And so what do we do? We go back to passages that make much of God's grace. We meditate on God's grace. Grace. I mean, we, we, it's so hard, but we have to preach to ourselves. I, I can't forget passages like Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You sit and you chew on that verse and you meditate on the riches of God's grace. We remind ourselves daily of the gospel of grace. We don't give because we don't understand. Number two, the Macedonians, they knew what they were giving to. We don't give because we don't understand what we're giving to. It's never just paying the bills. It's never just that when you give, you're giving to keep the lights on. No, you're, you're giving as an act of worship to keep the lights on such that we can shine the light of God's grace, Right? That's what we're about, making much of God's grace, the riches of what he has done. It's worship as hearts that are changed by God's grace. We can be a part of the gracious work among every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's God's grace. There's an old story about the differences between the moon and the sun. You know, the moon, sometimes it's a half moon, Sometimes it's a crescent moon or full moon. Sometimes it's, it shines really bright. Sometimes it's, it's really dim. It's constantly changing. But you contrast that with the sun. 
right? The sun is always shining brightly in its fullness. It's always there. It's always shining bright. Even if it's behind a cloud, you can still see the light shining through. It's never a half sun or a crescent sun. It's always in its fullness, shining brightly. I think it's a really helpful illustration of my hope that our church's spirit of giving is like the sun. That our spirit of giving is not like the moon, only coming up, changing every now and then, you know, for a special missions project or something like that. Those are good things to give towards. But my prayer, and I think Paul's prayer in 2 Corinthians 8, is that grace changes us and radically reshapes and reforms how we think about giving in the first place. That's what we get to participate in. Here and abroad, in our community and in the nations, transforming sinners to be saints, that's what his grace does. It's not about the quantity of money, it's about the quality of hearts that have been changed by grace. It's not about the amounts, it's about the attitudes. This is God's grace to us. For you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be changed by the wonder-working power of your grace, that you have called people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation to be a part of your kingdom, that the power of your grace in the gospel is not just a nice idea, but it actually is your power on display as it changes us. Lord, I pray that we would meditate on the riches of your grace to us in your Son. That though he was rich, yet for our sake, he became poor. So that we, by his poverty, might become rich. We ask this in your name. Amen.